Welcome to another episode of The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of my podcast. You would think this long after an American election was held, the outcome would be decided, a concession would have been given, and the transition, if any, would have begun. Well, one out of three ain't bad, right? Because that's what it's been. The outcome has been decided but there's been no concession and as yet no transition. The election has in fact been decided in favor of Joe Biden and there is no transition because Donald Trump either really believes he won or he's perpetuating the biggest fraud of a totally fraudulent presidency. His million MAGA march has come and gone and no one thinks it drew a million people except his delusional press secretary, Kaylee McInerney, who told the press when she first got the gig that she would never lie. Of course, we know how that turned out. All the while, the coronavirus continues to cost American lives at a rate not seen since the worst of the pandemic some months ago. And when Trump does talk about COVID-19, what does he say? He praises Operation Warp Speed And actually, since he did this, a second vaccine has come out that has apparently been 94.5% effective. But it doesn't matter because Donald Trump was upset that the vaccine wasn't announced before the election. So it might have had some impact one way or the other on the outcome. He made the pandemic, and a possible vaccine, all about him. Now, you would think that might be impossible, but I think most people really hadn't bargained for Donald Trump. Now, none of this should come as a surprise to anybody who's followed Trump's career, but what does give one pause is the extent to which nearly half of America bought into Donald Trump's delusions and continue to buy in to those delusions. You got to understand, this guy has gone to court. I believe he's filed at least 12 or 13 lawsuits. Two or three of them have still to be thoroughly adjudicated, but he's only won one of them. Yet he continues to hammer at this notion that he got jobbed, that somehow the election was rigged and snatched from him. And they try and grab this, and they try and grab that. And here is a difficulty that Trump's lawyers have. You know, if you go into court as an officer of the court, 
and you deliberately delude a judge or you come in with no or scanty evidence to back up your case, you could face legal sanctions for that. And a lot of these guys don't want to give up their law licenses for Donald Trump. That's why the people that were trying to litigate in Pennsylvania pulled out. That's right, pulled out. Now, I am amazed that people are willing to, as they did over this past weekend, come to blows over such a cowardly, weak president as Donald Trump has shown himself to be. And I really hate to say this, but I tell you, the counter-protesters might have done a little better with their time than to go confront these people, the Proud Boys and all the rest of these fools. I mean, I have a great deal of respect for Black Lives Matter, great deal of re uh, respect for Refuse Fascism, who I get emails from virtually every other day, and other groups that confronted Trump's MAGA army of dolts. But I would rather have them go through that day they said thousands. Nobody, I, it's interesting. Usually you can get an estimate of crowd size. You know, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King led the March on Washington and everybody knows, everybody has read any history, knows it was like 250,000 people showed up. When it comes to Trump stuff, they don't have an estimate. They say thousands, some say hundreds, some say this. It was nowhere near a million. Trust me on that. And that includes people that were there to counter their support, the MAGA army's support of Donald Trump. And my thing is, you know, leave them be. At a point, you got to take the air out of their tires. Let them be. Let their super spreader comrades run around and throw up American flags and, you know, yell and holler and scream and super spread coronavirus. Understand something, 130 members of the American Secret Service have either gotten COVID-19 or have had to quarantine because they were close to people that had COVID-19. That's the Secret Service. Can you imagine what might come out of that rally this past weekend? How many people, because remember, that was just a couple days ago. People aren't going to show up with COVID-19 symptoms, that is, right off the top. Now, some people who went and rallied, and people I see posting stuff on Facebook and emails, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Some of them may truly believe that Trump still has a chance of overturning the election results. I don't know what color the sky is in their world. But there are people, I think, who believe that can be done. Rudy Giuliani, who, by the way, has become a grotesque, bizarre joke, actually has said that he believes there should be a do-over in Pennsylvania. A do-over of an election. What does he present? Well, first of all, we need to establish that he had a press conference at Four Seasons Landscaping between a crematorium and a porn shop. And one of his witnesses was a guy who had done time for sexual crimes against children, for God's sake. But, hey, 
you know, I quibble. If that's who they think they need to tap in order to make their case, fine. Let them keep on. Sooner or later, the courts, I think, will tell them to sit down and shut up. This is a president who would put national security at risk to settle beefs that are centered around loyalty. Even his Republican enablers, one by one, are falling by the wayside. At this juncture, it matters little to me if he's scared of indictments, financial ruin, or both. He needs to go and figure out what to do with the rest of his life. Does he want to run again in 2024? Ah, maybe. But then again, maybe not. I doubt it. Donald Trump will be yesterday's news by 2024. The media, which I, I cannot emphasize this enough. I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. The media, whether they were for him or against him, made a fortune out of covering him. But they won't be doing stories on his every tweet four years from now. The challenge for Joe Biden is figuring out how to undo the damage that Trump has wrought. And that's not just bills and tax cuts and executive orders. Trump has managed to take a sledgehammer to the concept of civil discourse in this country. Over and above everything else, that could be his lasting legacy. Up next, progressives versus moderates. back to the intersection. So glad you're with us. You know, no sooner had the results begun to trickle in from the 2020 down ballot races than the finger pointing began among Democrats. Now, the reason for this is simple. Democrats thought that they would do much better in the House and in the Senate than they ended up doing. Remember all of those things during the summer? about how they were going to expand on the House majority and how there was a better than average chance that they would retake the Senate and the polling was backing them up on the list. Well, it did not happen. And maybe one day soon in another episode, we'll talk about polling and why some people need to hang that particular shingle up. But at any rate, these outcomes, disappointing as they were for some Democrats, led many of the moderates in the party to pull out the long knives and go after the progressive wing of the Democratic Party tooth and nail. The argument goes something like this. Black Lives Matter, defunding the police, Medicare for all, and even climate change spooked voters in swing districts. So did being labeled socialist or supporting socialist programs by people, by the way, who really don't know anything about socialism. One person pushed back hard and publicly 
against this foolishness. You guessed it, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. AOC did an interview with the New York Times that pointed out several reasons why incumbent moderate Democrats lost. The left flank of the party was not among them. Yet I think it even goes deeper than that. I've said before that large numbers of poor working people have become disconnected from politics and the political process. Many voted this time around because of their anger at Donald Trump. But let me explain something to people so they understand what I'm talking about. It's a startling figure. In the Garden State of New Jersey, 75% of the eligible voters turned out in the election just passed. But in the 10th Congressional District, which includes parts of Newark and East Orange and places like that, reliably Democratic places, places with large numbers of people of color and poor working people, that percentage was only 55%. Think about that for a minute. One of the most Democratic district, con congressional districts, in the entire state of New Jersey, actually the most democratic, reliably democratic district, in the entire state of New Jersey, the entire state only had a 55% turnout. And I think I know why, to be honest with you. And here's something to ponder, and it really doesn't have, it has to do with New York, not New Jersey. During the winter of 2018, 2019, 87% of New York City residents who live in public housing lost heat and or hot water for at least a 24-hour period. The city in which they live is run by a progressive Democrat. Now, I want you to be honest. Do you think it makes a dime's worth of difference to people in the freezing cold what the political ideology of the person running the city is? Multiply that by the indignities that working poor people face every day in America. And perhaps you'll start to realize how trivial fights between moderates and progressives actually are. Now, I will say this on the progressive side, and I consider myself to be a progressive, all right? I thought defund the police was terrible messaging on the part of Black Lives Matter, and they weren't the only ones that were pushing that agenda. You had city councils across the country that were pushing in progressive cities and towns, pushing the notion of defunding the police in the wake of what happened to George Floyd. I think it was terrible messaging, but over and above that, I don't think it would have been effective. And where they have defunded the police, I don't think it's gonna be effective. I've talked before about the late Dick Gregory's solution to the problem of police brutality. I still believe it would work much better than taking money from police departments. But the timid response of moderates to Medicare for all was just as damaging as their fear of defunding the police. And, I, you know, let's be honest. There were certain moderate districts, swing districts, however you want to describe them, where Republicans used defund the police as a sledgehammer against people who were more progressive than themselves. And in some districts, for example, suburban New York City, it worked. It worked. 
They flipped some districts that had gone from Republican to Democrat just two years ago, and now they've gone back to Republican again. Why? Because people get scared. People figure, defund the police, and next thing you know, God knows what could happen. Black people could come live in the neighborhood. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm being facetious about that. But I wonder sometimes the extent to which that is what we're dealing with here. Now, moderates not being able to sign off on Medicare for All is, in my judgment, inexcusable. It's not a public option. It's not uh, free health care for everybody, which would have been, for me, the preferred outcome. But Medicare for all would have been a good first step. But there's this paralyzing fear among moderate Democrats. And it makes manifest by blaming progressives when they don't make incremental progress in some of these swing districts. Now, I believe if, if defund the police is bad messaging, I think that there are a number of swing districts across this country that had poor messaging by moderate incumbent Democrats. And that's why they lost, not because of AOC. I mean, some people may have tried to use AOC as some sort of, of straw dog, but I think the bottom line here is she and the rest of the squad won easily. They won re-election. And see, what, they, what the moderates then turn around and say is, well, if they had to go to a moderate district, they'd get their heads handed to them. Well, you know what? If you as a moderate went to their district, you'd get your head handed to you. That's not the point. Never has been, never will be. Both sides of the Democratic coin need to take a deep breath. They need to look each other in the eye and they need to commit to fighting for the people of the United States, all the people of the United States. Maybe the Democrats can figure out how you can get heat in public housing in New York, in Detroit, in Newark, in Indianapolis, in Baltimore, and some of these other urban areas which, by the way, the public housing, funding for public housing in these places has been starved half to death. But maybe that's where they need to start. Maybe if you go to people in public housing and say, hey, listen, you know what? Work with me and I'll see to it you have heat. I'll see to it you have hot water so that you're not waking up one morning having to boil water in order to wash your kids, in order to make them breakfast, in order basically to function. Anything less, anything less than commitment to fight for all the people of the United States risks much. Because the people that came out for Joe Biden among the working poor this time, if their lot does not improve, they won't get fooled again. And finally, is it safe to travel for Thanksgiving? It's a traditional holiday. Are those holiday gatherings now out of the question? This is The Intersection.
Welcome back to The Intersection. Glad you're here with us on this episode. Thanksgiving is, in my judgment, that most American of holidays. Families get together, they share wonderful dinners, most featuring my favorite protein, turkey, and they talk to each other like they might not at any other time. Yet Thanksgiving 2020 may be different from any other time. Plain and simple, COVID-19 has perhaps shredded Thanksgiving across America and made large gatherings, even among family, problematic. The Washington Post recently talked to three public health experts about their plans for the holiday and what is safe and what may constitute risky behavior. Some very interesting stuff came out of these experts. One expert cautions against perceiving that you're safe when you may not be. Even small gatherings may offer the illusion of safety, this expert says, but it may well depend on whether anyone in that small group may have COVID or been exposed to COVID. This expert says social distancing and mask wearing are essential. Even though obviously you cannot eat with a mask on, you should still, this expert says, seek to minimize your risk. Do you know that they have even gotten to the point where they can tell you if you're at a table where you should sit to minimize your risk in conversation with people. That if you sit diagonally across from each other, there's less chance that whatever comes out of your mouth, whether it's spittle or whatever, will land in close proximity to somebody at that same table. Several experts say people who expect to travel either by car or by air, might want to quarantine for a few days before they leave and get tested also before they leave. They say the air in a plane is relatively safe, but taking a shuttle bus to a car rental and the air inside of a terminal or a restaurant inside of a terminal is less safe than being on a plane. Above all, these experts told the Post, Stay away from people who aren't wearing masks or practicing social distancing, no matter what the circumstance. Now, I'm sure many of you have seen people, certainly there were many of them at that MAGA march over the weekend, they weren't wearing masks, and they were pressed way too close together to be involved in social distancing. And even if you are in a situation where you're passing people on the street or whatever, or even inside of a restaurant, although most places are not allowing indoor dining anymore, there may be instances where you're gonna run across people that don't have masks, maybe on the train or whatever. That brings up a, a, an interesting and somewhat troubling conundrum. Do you confront people that don't have a mask on and ask them, where's the mask? or tell them they need to wear a mask. Now, in cities like New York, this can create some very, very huge problems. There was a video I saw the other day where somebody that was not wearing a mask, uh, a woman that was not wearing a mask, spat on a guy who was, because I, I guess the guy said something to her. And the guy literally 
kicked her behind and threw her off the train, knocked her off the train, and she fell on the platform. Now, that might have been an extreme reaction, but in these times, you do have to, if you're not going to punch somebody out, and I wouldn't recommend it, or confront people who might punch you out, I wouldn't recommend that either. But you may have to look, if you possibly can, to create as much space between you and somebody not wearing a mask as is humanly possible. Now, there are large numbers of people in America who don't believe in masks, who think mask wearing is just an infringement on their individual liberty. That's fine. If that's what you believe, stay away from me. And I have to tell you, I would recommend for people who feel that way, go to a hospital ward and get as close to a COVID patient that's on a ventilator as you possibly can and take a very long look at that person and see, of course, it's not possible in most cases, but see the agony that people are going through. See the agony of the families of these people and ask yourself what civil liberties are in fact being infringed upon. Now, again, you might think nobody in their right mind would expose to them, uh, expose themselves, that is, to people who are flouting guidelines. But people are in fact doing so. You know, the pull of economics, you know, because people have now been presented with a choice between health and the economy. You can't have both. Either you're going to open up the economy at the risk of people's health, or you're going to shut down the economy for the benefit of people's health. This is, in my judgment, a Hobson's choice, but it is a choice that more and more governments are making, especially in areas like in the Midwest and some other places where the COVID infection rate is spiking as we speak. Now, obviously, engaging with your family is a big part of what makes us human beings, all right? It's not just about the economy. It's not just about health. We like to interact with our family group, whether it's, be, whether it's a nuclear family or your aunts and uncles or whatever. But I've seen more than one email that says it may well be that you can forego family gatherings now so you can have family gatherings later. It is something for sure to think about. Thank you so much for listening. The executive producer of The Intersection is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Until we meet again, please stay well.